Welcome, First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gathering. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor, Nathaniel, with this week's message. I'd like to play a little word association with you, okay? I'm going to say a word, followed by the word and, and you will fill in the blank. Beans and rice. Burger and black and Cleveland Browns and I, I had disappointment here, but um, hot and Jonah and that's right. Today we begin a four-part series on the story of Jonah, and here's what we're calling it, Jonah. Wait, 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 that was the first part. There's more. Jonah, colon, you can't block God. It's actually a very short story. Only two pages in the Bible, four short chapters. And even though it's one of the best-known Bible stories, I think a lot of times we miss the point. We miss the main meaning. We miss the reason that it's included in Scripture. You see, the fish is actually a very minor character. It's only mentioned four times on two occasions uh, in the book in just three verses. And focusing on the fish in the story of Jonah is like focusing on the sheep in the Christmas story. They're present, but they're not the main point. In fact, Jonah isn't even the main character, even though the book is named after him. The main character of the story is God, his sovereignty, his plan, and his mercy. Jonah does all he can do to foil God, to block God's will and God's plan from happening. And what Jonah is going to discover, and so will we, is that you can't block God. Now today, Jonah's going to learn that you can't block God by running away from Him, even though you may try desperately. If you don't have a hard copy Bible and you'd like to borrow one for this service so you can follow along with what I'll be reading, the ushers are coming back down the aisles now with some copies, and if you just catch their eye, raise your hand, they'll be sure to give you one. And if you don't own a copy yourself, please accept this one as a gift from us and keep it for yourself. Now, I'm going to be reading the first chapter of the book of Jonah. We call it a book, but as I said earlier, it's actually very short. And I could try to give you instructions as to how to find it in the Bible, um, and that would take a really long time. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible as a book, I would encourage you to look in the table of contents. Even if you are familiar with the Bible as a book, you may still need the table of contents to find Jonah. And once you, once you found it, um, then turn to it. That's the point. And I'll be reading the first chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. 
Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we'll not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this point, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This first chapter is a a tight narrative, almost a suspense or action story. And I want us to work through it scene by scene. There are six total till we get to the end. The first scene I've entitled, God Commands, And it's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. This whole story starts with God's action. God initiates communication with his prophet, a man named Jonah. We don't know very much about him at all. He gives Jonah a very clear command. There's nothing vague or gray or uncertain about it. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, understanding something about Nineveh will also help us understand why Jonah responded as he did. Nineveh was a large city. We find out later in this book approximately 120,000 people, which for the day was massive. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Not only were they mortal, embittered enemies of the Jewish people, of which Jonah's a part, they were known throughout the entire ancient Near and Middle East for their unbelievable violence, torture, and depravity. So I have quotes taken from extra-biblical sources that describe what the Assyrians did to many of the people that they captured or defeated in their conquests, but I can't share them here. Truly, I can't. They're far too graphic. The Assyrians pioneered some of the most horrific methods of torture known to humanity. 
And it's enough for us to know that the Assyrians broadly and Ninevites specifically were the worst, what we might call terrorists of the day. And they bragged about, boasted, and amplified their perversions across the known world. So this is where God tells Jonah, a solitary Hebrew, to go. We might draw a parallel today by saying, by telling an, an Israeli to simply walk unaccompanied into Gaza and begin warning Hamas about God's judgment. Having said that, I also want to invite all of you again to the concert of prayer for persecuted church tonight because during one segment we are going to take some time to specifically pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for our brothers and sisters on both sides of this conflict, and pray that the Lord's peace, which is a result of righteousness, that's what the prophet Isaiah says, the fruit of righteousness shall be peace. Pray for God's righteousness and justice to descend over that whole region, and that He would be honored and glorified. So, I encourage you to come tonight, not only for that segment, but also that segment of prayer. So this is the, the, the context into which God has commanded Jonah to go. And in verse 1, we're not given the exact content of the message that God has commissioned Jonah to carry to, to Nineveh, but it was a hard warning one way or the other, a warning that would let the Assyrians know that God was aware of their wickedness, their violence, and their perversity. For those of you who are aficionados of veggie tales. We don't have any record in Scripture that the Ninevites were actually guilty of fish-slapping anybody. That's, that's extra-biblical, okay, just, just so you know. And if, you've, if you don't know what I'm talking about, keep it that way. It's, it's not worth discovering. But nothing about this command to Jonah is unclear. God states it succinctly and directly. Which brings us to scene two, which is entitled, Jonah Runs. Verse 3, just as there is no confusion about God's command, there's also no confusion about Jonah's response. Jonah runs away from God. Now, I realize that these place names don't really mean much to us today, so look at this visual in the form of a map. So, from Jonah's location in Israel, Nineveh lay to the east. That's that direction. So, where does Jonah go? He goes west, first a relatively short trip down to the port city of Joppa, with the intent of heading where? Tarshish, a city on the very western edge of the known world. Is there any uncertainty about what Jonah's doing? Now, at this point, we're not told what Jonah's motivation was. Chapter 1 is not clear about why he runs and why he goes in the opposite direction. We might imagine that it was simple fear that drove him. Fear of pain, fear of death, fear of the Assyrian reputation. But one reading straight through the book would not discover Jonah's main motivation until chapter 4, the final chapter. But in part because of the timing of what's going on in our state Ohio right now with issue one. I'm going to give a spoiler alert and skip ahead a little bit to let us know why Jonah ran. I'm not going to dwell on it, but I do want to touch on it because the election and the vote is, ends this, this Tuesday. 
At the end of chapter 4, I'm not going to go into all the details of what happens because I don't want to ruin the, 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 the next weeks of the sermons, but at the end, we have this encounter between God and Jonah. And here's the spoiler for any of you who don't know it. God spares the city of Nineveh. And Jonah is angry with God because he was merciful. And we discover that Jonah's main motivation for running away from God is that he did not want to be an instrument of God's mercy to Nineveh. And he blames God at the end. He said, I knew you were merciful. I knew you were compassionate. And I knew that, that this was going to happen. If I obeyed you and went to Nineveh, that you would save them and you would spare them. The last verses of this book read like this, but the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant. You'll find out more about the plant four weeks from now. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left from their right hand and also many animals? Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because he did not want God to save the Assyrians. He wanted them to die because he viewed them as a threat to him personally and to his nation corporately. At the very least, Nineveh was inconvenient. At the most, they were a direct threat of annihilation to Israel. But what I want us to note here is God's heart for people, God's heart for life. And I'm going to be direct on this, sisters and brothers, far more direct than I've been before, um, because I don't view issue one as a political issue. It's not about parties. It's not about a particular candidate. But I do view it as an ethical issue and a moral issue. If issue one were to pass on Tuesday, in addition to other measures, Abortion would be permitted in Ohio up to the moment of birth. It's difficult for me to square this with God's heart for life in people, especially the weakest of the weak and the most dependent in the womb. If issue one does not pass, it would not ban abortion in Ohio, but would continue with its current limitations. Jonah runs because he does not want 120,000 people to be saved from destruction. By the time we get to chapter 4, we'll realize that neither Jonah nor the Ninevites deserve God's favor, right? This isn't about deserving it or deserving His mercy. In fact, mercy in and of itself cannot be deserved. But God does have mercy on all of them. He has mercy on Nineveh and He has mercy on Jonah. God has mercy on all of them. That's another theme of this book. Please make sure that you know what is at stake in issue one. Know the language, its vaguenesses, and its implications so you can make an informed, intentional vote on Tuesday. God is the God of life and of the living. But for now, back to chapter one. In context, we still don't know why Jonah ran. All we know is that he did run. In scene three, God pursues and I want you to see in the first few verses here of Jonah, verse 1 starts, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And then verse 3 says, but Jonah. And then verse 4 says, then the Lord. And verse 5 continues, but Jonah. So the Lord does, but Jonah. The Lord says, but Jonah. God pursues Jonah in verses 4 and 5. He sends a wind. 
Jonah makes his intention to run from God's command more and more clear, and God responds by sending a great wind that causes a violent storm so bad that seasoned, experienced sailors were terrified and were crying out to their pagan gods, desperate for relief because there was nothing they could do. But notice that this wind is actually part of God's mercy. It's God pursuing, running after Jonah. He's not given up on him. To the contrary, God's trying to get his attention. But, I love this part, as the Lord pursues, where's Jonah? He's in the hold of the ship, fast asleep. And the Hebrew word that's used for sleep here isn't the normal word that's used for just a regular sleep. The word itself is radam. It's the same word used to describe the sleep into which God put Adam when he removed from Adam the rib around which he formed Eve. This is not just a normal sleep. This is a sleep of escape. Jonah is still running, even through sleep. Heading the wrong direction wasn't enough. He wants to make himself unconscious so he won't even be aware of God's efforts to call him back. And we know this because how does the captain respond? This seasoned mariner, how does he respond when he finds Jonah asleep? He's like, sleep in these conditions. Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that, you will not per- that we will not perish. This whole account is rife. It's absolutely full of irony. And, and here's one of those ironic points. The captain assumes that their dire situation is because God has forgotten them or lost sight of them, right? Call on your God so that he will remember us, so that he'll see us, see our dire situation, and maybe have mercy, right? The reality is, it's because God knows exactly who and where they are that this disaster has come on them. Far from forgetting them, God knows exactly where Jonah is. And secondly, here's another point of irony, these pagan sailors are praying to idols, right? And the captain adjures Jonah. He begs him, pray to his God, pray to your God, who we know, and Jonah ostensibly knows, is the only true God, the only one with real power in the situation. Who prays and who doesn't? The pagan sailors pray. The godly prophet does not. Scene four, Jonah doubles down. Verses six through 15. Now, This, the way I want to present this to you is probably going to be a little different than you have understood, perhaps, this particular part of the story in the past. When the sailors cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah, they bombard him with questions, and Jonah doesn't really answer any of them. He doesn't tell them where he's from. He simply says very piously and hypocritically, I might add, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So, on the one hand, he wants the sailors to know that his God is responsible for the storm, but on the other, he refuses to bow to God's will. He refuses to obey this Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Jonah knew why all this was happening, and yet To this point, he's been willing to sacrifice both his life 
and the lives of all the crew just to rebel against God. And the brazenness that we discover in Jonah, isn't that funny? I think it's funny. That when he first boarded the ship, he told the crew that he was running away from God. I imagine how that conversation went. He walks up the gangway, steps down onto the deck, he's like, hey, everybody, I'm running away from God. How does that go? But that's what he did. Here's more irony. The sailors fear. Fear the Lord. Jonah does not. He claims to know this God of the sea and dry ground, but doesn't fear him, while the sailors who do not know him do fear him. And now we come to what I believe is the most fascinating part of the story, at least here in chapter 1. Jonah tells them to pick him up and throw him into the sea and it will become calm. Right? We don't have a record in chapter 1 that this was God's command to Jonah. I'm going to not really go out on a limb here. I think it's quite clear in the text. Jonah has not repented. I mean, wouldn't repentance have been enough if he had just turned in sorrow to the Lord, admitted his rebellion, and thrown himself on God's mercy? And here's another question. Why didn't Jonah just jump over the side himself? If that's what it's going to take for the sea to become calm, why does he make somebody else do it? This man is still in deep, deep rebellion. He's still running from God. He's doubling down on his flight. He would rather die than submit to the Lord, and he wants the pagan sailors held accountable for his death. He won't even jump in himself. And there's another subtext here that's going to become even more clear in chapters 3 and 4. In Jonah's mind, if he dies, there'll be no one to warn Nineveh. So if he drowns, He's going to take the sailors down with him because they're, in his mind, going to be held accountable before God for his death, and the entire city of Nineveh will also be judged by God because no one's around to warn them. There's more ironies. The pagan sailors pray to the Lord while the Jewish prophet refuses to do so. The pagan sailors plead for mercy for killing a, quote, innocent man, that's what they say, right? While the guilty man, Jonah, tries to shift the blame onto the, quote, innocent pagans. And Jonah makes no confession. He never repents. He never comes before the Lord and says, forgive me, I've been wrong. You know, spare these men. Don't, don't let this happen. While the sailors admit their need for divine forgiveness, they're the ones who say, Lord, have mercy on us for killing an innocent man. Scene five, pagans worship the Lord. Amazing. That was Jonah's original mission, wasn't it? To preach to pagans. A mission that he entirely rejected by running in the opposite direction. But how does this first chapter end? With pagans sacrificing, praying to, and worshiping Yahweh the Lord of heaven and earth. The plans and purposes of God cannot be thwarted. He cannot be blocked in his intentions and purposes. Psalm 33, verses 10 to 11, read like this. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. 
He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. And Jonah is beginning to learn this the hard way, but he's still got three chapters to go. In scene six, God shows his mercy. Finally, for the first time in this story, we encounter the fish, a huge fish, big enough to swallow a grown man. We can try to find scientific evidence that such a thing would be possible, but these efforts will likely lead to nothing because this is, after all, a miracle, and miracles are just that. They're miracles, occurrences that can't be explained by the natural order of things, but only by supernatural divine intervention. And remember, this is God's provision. God provides it. God has mercy on Jonah. He deserves death. He's thrown into this raging ocean. The fish is not punishment. It's God's life preserver. Jonah deserves to drown and gradually drift to the ocean floor over the course of time. But instead, the Lord comes after him and provides for his rescue. Now, I have three points of application for us today in 2023. And with this, I want to close. The first has to do with the theme of this whole book. God's plans cannot be blocked. See, Jonah thinks that he can keep God's will from being accomplished. He thinks he can control God and manipulate circumstances to block God's purposes. He thinks that if he takes himself out of the equation, God will be at a loss and unable to proceed. I mean, can we imagine God panicking? Oh no, Jonah's in the sea. He's going to drown. What am I going to do? This wrecks all my plans. But God is sovereign. And one of the ways that this is emphasized all through this book, particularly in chapter 1, is that everything in this story bows to God's will. Every single thing, except Jonah. The wind obeys God's command. The sea obeys God's command. The sailors bow before the Lord of heaven and earth. And the fish obeys the commands of God. Only Jonah does not. And then we have to make this very uncomfortable and yet obvious application. Do we see ourselves reflected in Jonah and in his attitude? So are we running from God? Are we desperately trying to keep God's will in our lives from being accomplished, either in our lives or through our lives? Is there some place or some, some place that God has called us to go, or some place, something He has called us to say, or something that He's called you to do, and maybe you're terrified by it. Maybe you simply don't want the discomfort of it. Maybe you just don't like being told what to do. And is there a way that we are running from Him? The second application that I, that I want to draw out is simply the foolishness of running from God. See, the author of Jonah is intentional in the language and the words used to show the inevitable downward spiral that results from running away from God. Now, not all of this is reflected in English, but in Hebrew, 
Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the hold. He goes down into the sea, and he goes down into the fish. Down, 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 down. Running from God only goes in one direction, down. And we may not recognize our own running from God because it's usually not physical running in a certain direction. And we usually don't advertise it. I mean, I don't know if anybody, you know, calls an Uber, gets in, says to the driver, I'm running away from God, let's go to Seattle. I mean, I don't know, you know, I'm just thinking of kind of the farthest place away, you know, within our country here. Northern Canada, you know, or the tip of South America. But we can nonetheless be guilty of running from Him. We can be guilty of running from God while sitting in church. Ah, 15, 16 years ago, I don't remember. Do you, do you remember when that show 24 first came out? Um, it was incredibly uh, addictive, at least to me. And it, would, it consumed me, especially when we waited for it to come out in Brazil on DVD so you could, something new, like the idea of binge watching, that was an entirely new concept, you know, 20 years ago. Now it's part of our regular vocabulary, but I remember the Lord convicting me about how obsessed I had become with that show. And I was still only in the first season. <laughs> and, and I remember distinctly sitting in church where I'm ministering, right, on a Sunday morning as during worship, and the Lord is speaking and He's saying, you're running from me because I'm asking you to release this because you, it's become an idol to you. you you're you're obsessed with it. You, your attention goes there. When, when your mind has free moments, that's where it goes, and that's all you can think about. And it's like, okay, when, how many episodes can I get in tonight, you know, or whatever. And I was running from, from what the Lord was saying. And I know that sounds like something really simple, perhaps minor. I mean, it's not like, you know, going to Nineveh. But it's just an example of ways that we run from God. We can run from God internally, even when we're just, even sitting in church, right? But then the last application from this first chapter is God's incredible mercy. If God is merciful to Jonah, his prophet, in the middle of his rebellion, will he not be merciful to all his children when we repent when we stop running, and when we return to Him. Does God need Jonah to go to Nineveh? No, He doesn't. No, God saving Jonah's life is a pure act of love and mercy that has no hint of self-interest. And sisters and brothers, if you're running running through refusal to obey, running through resistance to God's will, running by sin, running with a hard heart, maybe running because of fear, fear that if you obey God or you do what He's calling you to do or asking you to do, you're going to pay a really high price. The merciful, sovereign God of the universe is pursuing you. And believe it or not, repentance is the easier way. Resistance, as we will see, is a far harder way to experience mercy because a fish might save your life, but I guarantee you it's not a very pleasant experience. 
And though God is merciful, the cost of running from him is a high one. He can't and won't be blocked in his purposes. Last Sunday, after the the second service, um, some of you may have been here then, uh, but something a little little different happened. Um, As that service came to an end, um, we just decided that maybe we were going to sing another song or two. Um, So, in that second service, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I usually invite people, if they can stay a few extra minutes and stack chairs, but what I said last time is, if you want to stay and just sing a couple more songs, we're going to keep going, but if you stay, then you're committing to stacking chairs. Um, We had a lot of people stay, but what, what happened that wasn't planned is that many people just came forward and stood in this area down here. Um, and sang and worshiped close by one another together. Um, And it was a very meaningful, joyful time. And I want to avoid two extremes. On the one hand, I want to avoid ignoring that. And on the other hand, I I don't want to manipulate or try to force something to, to happen again. But what I do want to say, and we've talked about this a lot this week, Pastor Gabriel and the lead staff and ministry staff and I, is that we want you to know that this space right here, it's open. And um, if for some reason you, you want to come and just stand, you know, with others, sisters and brothers, shoulder to shoulder, and worship the Lord here a little bit closer to the stage. It's not any closer to God, but it's closer to the stage. It's closer to Gabriel, though. <laughs> and you are more than welcome to do that. We're, we're th- this... And, and we'll continue our practice that um, if you uh, would like someone to pray with you or over you for a particular need, maybe it's you simply returning to the Lord after running from Him, then you can still come to this side of the altar and kneel here, and someone will come, a prayer minister will come and pray with you and over you. Um, other than that, this space here at the front is just open. The song we're going to sing next is Run to the Father. And there's a, a it, it was chosen intentionally for this. Pastor Gabriel chose it for this purpose. Because for those of us that have been running away from, now's the time to run to. Um, but even if you haven't necessarily been running away, there's still always closer that we can get. There's always more intimacy to pursue. There's always more mercy and grace and joy to experience in drawing near to the Father. Let's stand. And let's worship the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who cannot be blocked and yet who is merciful. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 1030 a.m. And we'd love to see you there. Have a great week.